Renata. And I'm Lauren. And I must say that I'm getting quite excited. The travel bug has been, well, no, hold on. Travel bug, but a long time ago when I booked the travel already. But <laughs> the travel that I booked when the travel bug bit me is coming closer. <laughs> I, uh, we're going to South Africa in um, two days on Tuesday Yay! night. So we're recording this on a Sunday morning. So I think actually by the time this episode airs, we'll already be there. But um, yeah, super excited to... Oh, I, I, I don't know if I can really call it home, but at least mm. be somewhere where there's a much greater sense of familiarity. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I get what you mean with calling it home, but South Africa will always be home, right? I mean, you, you're from there and it feels like home at least in my head it still feels like home um although this is also home anyway but it'll be really good to go and fill your social cup and show or give Stefan some default different experiences (laughs) some default experiences (laughs) (laughs) no I think um It'll be good. It'll be really good because I have obviously got a lot of um, friends still there, some family still there as well. And I mean, these are all connections that I've obviously built up over 27 years or so. So they're really strong connections. So for me, it's always a nice, you know, moment to to go and refill my social battery because I haven't been able to establish those kinds of relationships in Switzerland yet. But Mm. then again, I mean, you know, comparing 27 years to two years. So there's still time, I guess. But, um, yeah, and I think for Stefan, it's also, it's not his first time there. Last time we did a lot of the touristy things, but uh, I think it's always nice for him to kind of see where I grew up and, you know, mm. things that are very South African and maybe a little bit odd to him, but he, he just he very much enjoys it. Mm-hmm. Yay, that's exciting. Have you started packing? No. I, uh, well, um, I have half a suitcase full of gifts because there's a couple of people who are having birthdays uh, while we're there and like my grand's having her birthday and so my mom is sending gifts with me too and uh, anyway so I have half a suitcase of gifts I have nothing else packed well at least you will be able to come home with some new clothing new good quality cheap clothing (laughs) yes yes I have to, I've like for the last two weeks, I've been thinking, oh, I need to get a new pair of shoes. Or I need to get that or whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait until you're in South Africa because then you wait can until you get back. Actually, yeah, exactly. Find some things and not to have to sell a kidney on the black market for it. Yes. And you? I don't have all that much to update. I went to a dentist today um, on a Sunday, which was a very different experience. That would be like. In Switzerland, nothing is open on a Sunday. So especially going to the dentist on a Sunday would be like you'd blow the minds of the Swiss people that they could go to the (laughs) dentist on a Sunday. You know, I find it quite surprising that they're open here as well because a lot of places close at like 12 on a Sunday. But not this dentist. They open until 9 p.m. on a Sunday. So that was nice. Um, Yeah. Other than that, I am just reviewing some travel plans 
we're looking to see what options are available for travel in the not too distant mm. future. It's always exciting. Yeah. So we promised last week that um, we would do a follow-up episode to our episode on grief and why grief manifests physically in the body. Um, and the follow-up episode was sort of centered around, or the, the promise for the follow-up was sort of centered around how you can deal with that grief or how you can overcome grief a little bit easier. <clears throat> um, so the research that I'm bringing to us to, to you today is um, not so much what you can do to combat grief, but I guess just gives us more of an understanding to what is happening and how to support the body a little bit more or how the body functions so that you can support it a little bit more. So the takeaway from this isn't going to be like you can do X, Y, Z to support your body in grief, but it might give you a bit of a better understanding to how it works and how it functions and you know, how the body responds to different different things. So yeah, we'll get into it. Sounds good. So before we get super deeply into it, let's just take a quick look at what we discussed last week. So last week we touched on why grief is felt physically in the body. So in a very quick summary, in order for us to understand grief better, we look into how attachments are formed. We form attachment by building neural pathways or maps that represent our attachment to a person, an animal, or an object. And in this neural map is information that is encoded about where they are in space, where you can physically find them, where they are in time, that being time being relative to yourself, so how far they are from you or how long it will take you to get to them, how long ago you saw them, and so forth and where they are in proximity or how close they are to you. So your emotional attachment to them, how well you know someone or how much they mean to you. When someone is removed from your circle, your brain needs to rewire the space and time elements of that map. We don't change the attachment or proximity component, but we now need to adjust the space and time component. And because the brain likes to predict what is going to happen, it expects that the person is still going to be accessible, which explains why you yearn for them. In the brain, the area of the brain that lights up when we experience grief is the same area involved in experiencing physical pain. Because we are social creatures, we are wired to function and survive in a social setting. So when we lose someone, or someone exits your, exits your life in some way, we experience social rejection, which the brain interprets as a threat, sending us into a state of stress. Now, when we are stressed, the brain releases a chemical called cortisol, and the cortisol is released over a prolonged period of time because grief is a prolonged experience and affects the body physically through different stress responses, which vary from person to person, but could include lack of sleep, brain fog, distraction, memory difficulties, and physical pain. Another important point to remember is that when we are attached to someone, our brains release chemicals called dopamine and oxytocin, the happy hormone and the love drug. And these chemicals make us feel good and lift our spirits. We all like feeling good, right? So we become addicted to these hormones. So when we lose this person, we deprive the brain of those chemicals that it yearns for, and we actually go into physical withdrawals because we are not well we're not producing these hormones anymore and that obviously also plays into how we physically experience grief or mourning or 
sadness. On that note, we'll move into a little bit on how grief is experienced by different people. Now, we know that no one person experiences grief the same way. People move through grief differently. And when we lose someone or when we experience grief, we have the option to choose which part of the neural map we're going to rewire. So some people will choose to disengage and rewire their attachment to that person. They'll find it so overwhelming that that person is no longer accessible to them, that they will change their ideas on how close they really were. They try and change their emotional attachment to the person after they have died or they have left or exited your life. Now, it's important to note that as humans, we tend to rely on experience more than knowledge. So simply having the knowledge that someone is no longer accessible to us cannot rewrite or discard the experiences and the memories that we have with that person or the knowledge that we have of that person. And as a consequence, our brain is constantly generating expectations on how to access them, even if we know on a logical level that it's irrational or not possible. We want to default to drawing on our experience and the memories we have with that person before taking the knowledge into account that they are no longer accessible to us. Psychologists and neuroscientists generally agree that the best way to approach this is to remap these dimensions while maintaining the emotional attachment to that person by not trying to undermine how close that person was to you. Now, they give a couple of recommendations or suggestions on how we might go about this. You need to acknowledge and understand that you don't want to disengage from your attachment from that person because your attachment is a real thing, but rather to understand that you are now rewiring the map of the emotional attachment still intact, but with a space and time being adapted. So essentially, you maintain your sense of attachment, but you need to start making predictions and understanding how you're going to feel those without the expectation of what has happened in the past is going to happen again. And one way to do this is to set aside a, a dedicated period of time in which you're going to actually feel and feel deeply, but you are consciously going to try and prevent yourself from thinking in a counterfactual pattern. So you're going to disengage from thoughts such as the what ifs and the endless possibilities that come coupled with that way of thinking because they're closely linked to guilt. But rather to allow yourself to feel that intense emotional connection while remaining grounded in the present moment, present in your space and time, your current space and time. This can often be, often be very emotional and physically challenging experience, but it represents the first step to allowing us to maintain that feeling of emotional connection to someone without experiencing the yearning for them. Keeping in mind that it is entirely normal for your brain to be flipping between the expectation that they will suddenly appear or be present again. And it's entirely normal that you might start to experience them as present in that environment as well. The question then arises, where or in what should we root our belief or understanding of this person? And the answer to this will vary from person to person, depending on what your belief systems are, whether you're religious, scientific, or whatever your belief systems would be, but will differ. The important thing is that you have some sort of belief to where this person is. So it could be, for example, someone was buried or cremated, or they've moved away, or they might physically be where you would expect them to be. They might physically be 
at their home or whatever the case may be, but you do not have access to them. And this would be the most adaptive way or be considered the most adaptive way of going about dealing with grief. You're not trying to avoid dealing with it, but you are avoiding engaging in counterfactual thoughts or other ways of distracting yourself. Now, another component that substantiates this argument is that your breathing rate and your vagal nerve tone has a significant effect on how we experience stress. Now, without getting too deeply into the biology behind it, the vagus nerve is a part of your nervous system or is one of the nerves you've got two nervous systems well you've got one nervous system that has two parts to it you've got your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system and your sympathetic nervous system is generally involved in like your fight or flight response where your parasympathetic nervous system controls how your body responds to things in your state of alertness and calm so the vagus nerve is a part of the parasympathetic nervous system and influences your state how heightened you might be or bring your heart rate down bring your breathing rate down that type of thing how how calm you might be so in other words uh, the vagal nerve tone has the ability to increase or decrease your heart rate depending on how the nerve stimulate stimulates its function a study was done where two groups were brought in and asked to write about different topics the one group was asked to write about a grief experience that they just recently had And the other group was asked to write about their everyday tasks, what they do on a day-to-day basis and how they go about life. And in this study, the results indicated that those who are writing about their grief were paying close attention to their emotions and their feelings of attachment. And in that, they were intrinsically aware of their physical state of being. So they were very aware of what was going on inside the body and what they were feeling. They were controlling their heart rate through reduced breathing rates and in that, stimulating the vagal nerve. These individuals were then found to be better equipped to deal with and move through grief because they were more intrinsically aware of their internal state and thus able to control the nervous system responses better, which would also explain why speaking with a psychologist or engaging in psychotherapy would be effective because it forces us to lean into feeling those feelings, experiencing the attachments and becoming aware of that intrinsic working and state and allows us to regulate our hormone levels better, which will allow us to move through grief more adaptively. Hmm, Interesting. So you'll remember that we spoke about cortisol levels that spike as a result of grief. The reason for this being that when we experience grief or a sudden change to someone's presence in our lives, our brain registers this as a threat to our survival and sends us into a state of stress. Cortisol is a stress hormone that is released to allow the body to function in fight or flight states. Given that during these times your brain is releasing chronically high levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, it then stands to reason that having strategies to manage and cope with your stress will support you in times of grief. So not only to support your day-to-day stress, but to also support those times where you have these sudden spikes in stress levels that are triggered by experiences that do not typically occur on a daily basis. So in managing your stress on a day-to-day level, you are lowering your pre-existing cortisol levels, that being the levels that occur daily and naturally, 
so that when we have a sudden and unexpected spike in stress levels, they do not spike as chronically high as what they might have if you were living a stressful everyday life. I think, you know, just a quick note on stress management as well. I think it's something that we all get so blasé about um, Mm. because it's become so normal to be stressed um, in today's society, usually to do with work. Um, But it's become such a such a normal thing. I don't even think that we really properly identify it anymore and actually proactively do something to deal with it. And um, I think it's just um, it's in, like like we've said here as well. It's also it's good to first of all deal with your everyday stress or find a way in which you can cope with your everyday stress, um, mm-hmm. so that when these sort of unexpected spikes when these events do happen and they will happen at one point in life we will all go through something like this that we are better able to manage it because then your body is not already in survival mode when this happens Mm. and you just it just pushes you over the edge so um yes it's uh something that i think we've ignored but at the same time you know media says oh you know 10 tips to reduce your stress and 10 tips to do that and blah 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 you know, still something to be said that we should look into how we can manage this on a day-to-day mm. basis. And it also talks to, I guess, how many, you mentioned how we become blasé about um, about your stress levels. And it's so true. It's sort of just like a, oh, well, stress is just a part of your everyday life. And, you know, that's just, I'm stressed all the time and that's just how it is. Mm. But if you look at this on a, on a, scientific level or on a biological level how it works into your body it just highlights how stress has these major effects on the body and can cause chronic illness um we know everyone says that stress causes chronic illness but you don't really believe it until it happens to you and by the time it happens to you it's too late um you Mm. know so and just seeing this and understanding this, you know, we've we've all at some point, even in the absence of grief or heartache um, of sorts, experienced a time where we felt so overwhelmed by the stress levels that we've been experiencing because one simple thing had happened. I very mm. uh, vividly remember a time that I was so high strung and stressed by, I guess, just work and integrating into work. It was just shortly after I'd arrived here. Um, you know how stressful life gets at that point in time and I got an email and it was one email that I just didn't have and it was the most random it wasn't even anything significant like nothing that needed to be actioned or to be done or anything from my side and it just pushed me over the edge to the point where I was like nope can't function at all I was so high strung and like I crawled into bed and cried for hours Um, because I just couldn't deal with it all. So finding Mm. those ways to manage your stress on a day-to-day level, whether it be something like getting out into nature and just being present with your surroundings, identifying that nature is pretty and it is amazing and there's a world out there that is beautiful, you know, or something something that fills your cup, something like exercise to de-stress or, you know, whatever it is that your coping mechanism is on how you deal with stress, just to make sure that that's a part of your everyday routine to support your body on a biological and scientific level. Mm. 
No, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that, that's something that I'm not good at. I need to be a bit more proactive about managing stress and find some kind of way that I can tap out of it a little bit. Um, I wish I was someone who would experience stress reduction by exercising. That means I'd probably be half the size I am now. But uh, it's just never been my thing. <laughs> so I'm still looking. And uh, yeah, important that I actually do find it because I'm not super good with managing my stress mm. levels. Or even if it's just something small to to pull you out of the moment of, you know, being so busy and being so stressed, something that can just pull you out of that because oftentimes just being able to pull you out of that and be in the present moment and reduce your stress levels in that particular moment um, will help with managing those levels moving forward as well. Like it will bring mm. down those cortisol levels. It will spike your oxytocin levels because you're engaging in something that you like and that you enjoy. And it will help to manage those feelings of stress and overwhelm in the, in the moments. Mm. Now we know that two people, no two people experience grief in the same way. In fact, we never really know how another person is feeling and within ourselves may sometimes find it challenging to even describe our own emotion through language. Now, in some, in some instances where two people may have lost the same person or animal, it may at times appear as though one person is experiencing a more intense grief than what the other one is. And the reason for that comes down to an area of the brain that houses the oxytocin receptors. It's called the nu nucleus accumbens, which is also a part of the brain that is responsible for motivation, for craving, and for pursuit. Now, People who experience grief very intensely have high levels of oxytocin receptors in the area of the brain that experiences craving and pursuit. So the fact that these people have an intense yearning and an impulsive need to maybe text someone or to reach out to them, even if it isn't possible, would mean that there are more oxytocin receptors in the brain that lead to those intense feelings of desire, craving, yearning for a person. This does not mean that that person is more or less attached to an individual or an animal, rather that their chemical receptors in the brain may experience hormone levels differently to someone with less chemical receptors. Now, as we mentioned in last week's episode, oxytocin is the love hormone and is released when we spend time with those that you care very deeply about. So spending time with the others or spending time with others who are willing to listen and go through the process with you, who are willing to hear you out when you repeat yourself over and over and spending time with these people doesn't distract you from your grief, but it allows you to process a grief while feeling that attachment, but also releases oxytocin from being around those people that you care about, which oxytocin counteracts the effects of cortisol in the brain. So it reduces that feeling of stress and reduces the physical feelings of pain and emotion that you're also feeling. So I mm. guess this just sort of brings it a little bit more into understanding or into a, I don't know, a concise biological understanding of how grief works and how, how it would affect the body and just how you can support it. It 
you know, if we if we're able to spend time with a family or spend time with people that are close to you, people that you enjoy spending time with, it really does on a chemical level make a difference to how your body is experiencing that stress because grief manifests as a as a symptom of stress or as a stress response in the body. And whether you're feeling grief from losing someone close to you, from losing an object that you're very highly attached to or an animal or that type of thing, doing the things that will counteract that stress response in your body or help you manage that stress response in your body really does make a big difference to exactly what is happening inside the brain and in the body and will reduce those stress levels on a physical level. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. I think it um, it comes, I don't quite know what's the right way to articulate it, but to say that we all need to kind of build up a little bit of a toolbox for ourselves um, for these stressful situations or, you know, whatever works for us, our little toolbox to help us handle stress or um, anxiety or, you know, mm. that kind of thing. And by by identifying what works for you, what helps you in sort of these more minor situations means that when there is something big that comes along, like losing someone or going through a breakup or going through an intensely sad experience like this, it means that you're a little bit better off because you already have a bit of a toolbox to fall back onto and um, you hopefully your resting level of stress is hopefully lower than if you weren't mm. doing anything mm. yep exactly yeah. i think that wraps it up for us today a short episode for you guys um if you are enjoying the podcast or have enjoyed this episode or some of our other episodes um please feel free to pass them along to someone that you think would benefit from listening to them or would enjoy them uh leave us a little review or a star rating um anything goes a long way to help us get out there a little bit yes. um and yeah if you're not already following us on social media we are on tiktok facebook and instagram so please head on there head on over there and find us at, at unconditional.uncensored is that our handle yes i can't remember our handle <laughs> oh, okay at unconditional.uncensored until next week bye bye